Today, uh, we'll be jumping back into the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, let's turn there. Mark chapter 11, and we're going to read verses 12 through 25. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, so if you have your apps, you guys can turn to that uh, version. Uh, but if you don't have your Bibles or your apps, it's going to be up on the PowerPoint for you guys to follow along. Once again, Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. Let's give our full attention to the reading of God's word. Jesus, the following day, when, he, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing the distance of fig tree in, in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning. They saw the, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you, have stand, whenever you stand praying, forgive if, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is God's word. Amen. All right, to have expectations is to be human. Right? It's almost impossible to be void of expectations, whether it's academic, professional, relational, um, personal, right? There are expectations. So you study hard for that test, and so you expect to get an A, right? Uh, you work hard. You, you come into work on time. You do your duties uh, to the best of your bil- abilities, and so you expect a promotion, right? Um, I have a 15-month-old that is not yet walking, Right? My expectation of her by this time is you should be walking, right? but she's not. Right? So those are some examples of fair expectations, nothing outside the norm. But we too are guilty of unfair and unrealistic expectations. For example, the Lakers this year. Right? I, won't, I won't have to explain that, but you know, I really expected that you know, LeBron James will take the Lakers to the conference finals. A bit of an unrealistic expectation, right? And so it's unfair for me uh, to expect my one-year-old to clean up, uh, clean up after herself, after she eats or if she poos in her diaper, to, for her to go ahead and clean that up yourself. Unfair expectations. Right? If you don't go into work on time and you're 30 minutes late every day and you don't do your duties, you can't expect a promotion. If you don't study for that test, you procrastinate, you can't expect to pass the class or get an A. Fair expectations and unfair expectations. And we've probably had them or have been on the receiving end of some of those expectations. 
In our passage today, we seem to have a classic case of unfair, unrealistic expectations. We are told that Jesus was hungry. He approached a fig tree that had no figs on it. And we're told that it wasn't even in season for the figs. But yet Jesus cursed that fig tree and that fig tree withered away. Um, And and it's very interesting because in the Gospel of Mark, this is the only time we see a destructive miracle from Jesus. So what's going on here? So when our expectations are met, Right? We get disappointed, frustrated, and over time we get over it. Right? Why such a visceral reaction to this fig tree? Right? Jesus takes it to an extreme level of disappointment. And he curses that fig tree. Right? So how are we to explain Jesus' violent action towards this seemingly innocent tree? Right? What we're seeing here is an enacted parable. Enacted parable. Uh, Jesus' main method of teaching and preaching were through parables, which were stories and illustrations to teach a truth about God and his kingdom. And so we have parables like the parable of the prodigal son. We have parable of the good Samaritan. These are stories. An enacted parable is a real, physical, visible action to teach us a lesson about God and his kingdom. The Old Testament prophets had these enacted parables and experiences of these enacted parables. One of the, one of the most uh, vivid one is when God told his prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute. And that was a lesson to teach uh, the people of God in Hosea the love of God towards an adulterous people. An enacted parable. That is what we're seeing here in Jesus' interaction with the fig tree. Now, there are four things for us today that I want to, four main ideas for our passage. The first one is expectations. The second one is misappropriations. And lastly, right, I'm going to combine two ideas, destruction and restitution. So once again, expectations, misappropriation, and then destruction and restitution. So first, Expectations, verse 13 once again. And seeing in the, in, in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So fig tree harvest was in this time, in this place, August to October. And starting around early spring, March to April, the leaves start to form. And uh, as the leaves form, what eventually happens is these small green buds of the figs start to appear, right? But they're not fully in season until June, where you can actually enjoy ripe figs. And so what happened was when Jesus saw in a distance a green leaf, which symbolized it's the start of of the figs to form, he saw the leaf and said, there must be something there. So he goes closer and closer to the tree, and there's nothing to be found. He should have seen some green buds. And although they were bitter, right, if you're really hungry, you can eat those green figs just to appease your appetite. He saw that green leaf. He's like, there must be something there because he's hungry, right? So this wasn't a case of Jesus just being hangry, right, and just destroying this fig tree. No, he actually 
was really hungry, and he, he was expecting to see at least the green figs. But he went, and there was nothing to be found. Right? Fig trees are symbolic figures in the Old Testament of God's people. Whenever you see a, a, a vineyard, um, a fig tree, it's representing God's people, Israel. But whenever we see the mention of a fig tree, it's always in judgment of God's people, that they lack fruit, that there's nothing on that tree when God takes a look. And so we have passages like this in Jeremiah 8, verse 13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Expectations. We have to know the relational history between God and Israel to understand God's expectation of his people. Right? To, make ex- uh, to make sense of these expectations, we have to know the history. So there are numerous events in the Old Testament that define the relationship between God and Israel. One of the pivotal ones was when God rescued his people, the Israelites, from Egypt. 400 years, over 400 years of slavery God rescued them. And upon rescuing them, he covenanted with them. He made these promises with them. But they were conditional. Upon rescuing them, he said, here's my law. You obey these laws, and you'll experience blessings. If you disobey these laws, you'll experience curses. He covenanted with them, and there were expectations in these covenants that God, was, God promised to and was expecting Israel to reciprocate. These binding agreements, both blessings and curses. God sovereignly chose Israel. He relentlessly loved them. He miraculously rescued them and abundantly blessed Israel. He planted He watered, he fertilized, he even warded off threats to this tree, Israel. And what do we see in the Old Testament? What did the people of God do over and over again? They disobeyed. They worshiped other gods of other nations. They didn't fulfill and meet the expectations of God to worship him as the one true God, Yahweh. So the Old Testament is a story of Israel's failures to meet God's expectations, but also God's undying patience with his rebellious people. So many occasions for God just to say, you're done. I'm done with you. But because God made promises and he held to his end, he he, he demonstrated patience and long-suffering. And so Jesus came expecting to see fruit in Israel. And there was no sign of any fruit, nothing to be found. And so he curses the fig tree, verse 14. And he said to it, may no one ever, ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. See, expectations are necessary in covenant relationships. So what then is God's expectation of you and me today? Does God have expectations of us? And is it fair for him to have expectations of us? Uh, We'll come back to that in a little bit.
See, what happens next gives us greater insight into the meaning of the barren fig tree. Jesus goes to the very place, right? The very place where fruit should be found. He goes to the temple. He goes to the temple and instead of seeing fruit, it's not, it's not that there was no fruit. Actually, the people of God were rotting. It's actually even worse. The next thing we see is misappropriation. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Right? Somebody get Jesus something to eat, right? It seems like his hangry rampage is now continuing, right, in the temple. That's what it appears. And this is a scene where Jesus is whipping, and he's overturning, and he's almost violent. He is violent. In this moment, why was Jesus so upset? What set him off? What is going on? See, the temple in Jerusalem, this was like kind of the third version or the third iteration of the temple. The first one was destroyed in the Babylon uh, Babylon, uh, captivity. The second one was rebuilt by Zerubbabel. Now Herod at this time was in the process of remodeling this temple. And it was glorious. It was amazing. But the purpose of the temple, we need to understand what the, what the purpose was. There are four main areas in the temple of God. The first one was the court of the Gentiles. This was the biggest area in the temple. The second area were the courts for the women, where women can come and worship. The third one uh, was, was for the Israelite, circumcised Israelite men who can worship. And in the innermost part of the temple was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. The very holy presence of God was in the inner, right? So in this moment, Jesus is in the outer courts, the court of the Gentiles, right? The place where outsiders, non-Jews can come and experience God and his blessing. See, the main purpose of the temple was people to learn about God and to experience Yahweh, it was supposed to be a holy place of worship. And see, God's plan for salvation, if you look in the Old Testament once again, wasn't just for the Israelites. It wasn't just for the Jews. God's plan of salvation was for the nations, every tribe, every tongue, to confess Jesus to be Lord. And so this outer Gentile court was provisioned for God's plan to take his blessings to all the nations. And what do we see instead? Instead of the mission being fulfilled, we see, we see that space being used as a stock exchange for selfish gain. Verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you you have made it a den of robbers. See, sacrifices were important for temple worship. And so these dealers were providing a necessary and essential service. But what happened was it became the primary purpose of the court of the Gentiles. They were taking a precious space and people were taking, being taken advantage of financially. 
And what was supposed to be a place of blessing for Gentiles became a stumbling block. It was overcrowded with all these salesmen. Now, there are obvious modern examples of religious misappropriation. The prime example being the prosperity gospel. Right? The prosperity gospel is a gross misappropriation of the church. You give to God, God will give you back tenfold. You send a check and God will give you a miracle. He will heal you, get rid of your debt, grant you success. Just send me a check and God will do this for you. The prosperity, prosperity gospel is gross. It is a false gospel. And so misappropriation, misappropriation of the gospel is very clear in the prosperity ministries. Luckily, we don't have that problem here at this church. We don't have that problem. But misappropriation is multifaceted. And it could come in different shapes and forms. See, misappropriation of, of religion, if I can summarize it, is this. You take God out of the center and you place your agenda as the main focus. Let me say that again. Misappropriation of Christianity or misappropriation of religion is to take God out of the center and place your own personal agenda as a main focus. So if I say that way, are we guilty of misappropriation? Think about it. See, there are fundamental differences between religion and Christianity. The institute of religion, religion at the core is about self-preservation, isn't it? You follow the rules. You make sure your good outweighs the bad. Give. Do everything. Impossible. Why? Why? So you can avoid hell to gain heaven. Isn't that self-preservation? Isn't that self-interest? At the core, that is what religion is. So in religion, what's celebrated is what? The outcome. The outcome is celebrated. Blessings, wealth, health, success, heaven. In Christianity, what's celebrated is not the outcome. What's celebrated is a relationship. That's the main difference. You get God as your father. You get God. So let's say I go to Jane and tell her, let's have a fourth baby. The first thing that she might do is just smack me upside the head. Right? But the second thing she might do is, why? Why do you want a fourth child? And let's say I, I tell her, you know, I heard you get better tax breaks the more children you have. And you know that minivan that I always wanted? Yeah, I think that you know, having a fourth child, we can get a minivan. Let's have a fourth. At that time, she'll punch me probably in the face. Right? How selfish is that? Just because I don't have to carry the baby in me for 10 months or nine months, right? Not because I love you. Not because I love having children with you. But purely for what I want. I would say that's a misuse of marriage. <laughs> that's a misuse of children. That's a misuse of family. How ridiculous would that be if that's the reason why I want a fourth? See, the religious leaders took the temple, the place to experience God, and made it about themselves, sought ways to benefit themselves. And it came at the cost of God's global mission being fulfilled. 
religious business got in the way of intimate relationship to those that needed it the most. Brothers and sisters, is there any misappropriation in your faith? Do we participate in religion for self-serving purposes, for self-preservation? Or do we see our faith as a way to fellowship with God? Here's a quick test. Here's a quick test for us to consider. When things don't go the way that we want it to go, while we're attending church faithfully, praying fervently, serving consistently, right? when we're doing all these things and you don't get what you want, what is your reaction to that? See? It doesn't work. Faith doesn't work. Is that your reaction to disappointment and frustration? God, I'm doing all these things. How come I didn't get that? I wanted to get into that grad program. That's why I was praying. I was fasting, going, into, going to church every Sunday. I wanted to get that promotion. I wanted this relationship. See, it doesn't work. Faith doesn't work. You look at the situations and the outcome and conclude, faith has failed me. God has failed me. Or is it when you're doing all those things and you don't get what you want, is then your reaction, God must have a different plan for me. God must have a better plan for my life, for my future, for my family. Do you see the difference? One is focused on the outcome. The other is focused on a covenant relationship, believing in God's goodness, that he has your best intention in mind. See, from the outside, the temple was awesome. It was in the remodeling process. Amazing in appearance. But upon closer examination, there was a lack of fruit. And actually, it was rotting at the core. See, I want to go as far as to say that there was no faith in the temple. And I want to say, actually, there was a little bit too much faith in the temple. It just wasn't placed in God. It was placed in their religious system in themselves, self-righteousness, what I can do. There was a lot of faith that was just misplaced. See, what is God trying to say to us today? Appearances don't matter. What we look like does not matter. See, there was great promise in the green leaf that Jesus saw from a distance. There's great promise in the huge temple and the beautiful remodeling. It doesn't matter. What God is looking for is faith in him. Relationship. The heart is what God is after. See, ANCC has doubled in the past three years. Since I've been here, it's doubled in size. We remodeled this room and we're getting ready for another, another remodeling project. Great things, amazing things that are happening. It doesn't matter though. Do you hear me? It doesn't matter. We can look great. We can sing in tune. We can give generously. We can serve sacrificially. But what God ultimately wants is our trust in our affections. What will Jesus see if he came here today? If he's in this room right now, looking at every one of our hearts, what will he see? 
So we saw Israel failing to meet God's expectation. The temple was a gross example of misappropriation of faith. So what needs to happen? How is God going to fulfill his purpose? How is God going to produce fruit in these things? This brings us to our last point, two points. Destruction and restitution. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you, have, you cursed has withered. The plan is complete destruction of the tree. And later, Jesus predicts a complete dem- dem- a demolition of the temple. Mark 13, verse 1. And he came out of the temple, and one of his disciples said, said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will, not be the, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be overthrown. That will not be thrown down. No wonder the Jews wanted to kill Jesus with such predictions. See, the problem is the root. The heart is corrupt. No matter what you do externally, if the root is rotten at the core, nothing can make that tree flourish. You can throw all sorts of religious rules and activities. You can dress the tree with all sorts of ornaments and even put a star on top of it. But without strong, healthy roots, that plant, that, uh, without, uh, without strong and healthy roots, all you have is a dead tree. All you have is a dead tree. The problem is the heart. Mark 7, verse 6, and he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts, their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. It doesn't matter what we say. It doesn't matter how we appear. What God is looking for is within our hearts, our affections, our faith. Is it there? See, Jesus came not to make a better version of us, but to make us brand new. He came to give us a brand new heart that has the capacity to trust and believe and love him back. That's the plan of salvation. Verse 22 and 23 of our passage. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Jesus needed to uproot Israel's confidence in themselves and to replant them in the fertile soil of himself. In Jesus's righteousness, in his perfect work. See, the plan of salvation was to completely uproot us from the old covenant based on the law and to replant us in his new covenant of grace. Jesus came to do away with man-modified temple systems that kept people at arm's length. And instead, he, as a temple of God, came and gave himself to us freely so that we can experience true fellowship with God. 
So that in Christ, no matter what ethnicity, what background, even what socioeconomic background you come from, no matter what culture, because of Christ now, being planted in Christ, we can now experience God as our Father. And that was the plan of salvation. So how does this destruction and uprooting happen without God destroying us? Because we're still here, right? We're not destroyed. How does this happen? How does the destruction of the old and the restitution of the new happen? How can we meet God's expectations? Jesus literally uprooted himself for you and me. The one who possessed everything God desired, bearing all the fruits that please God, what did he do? He left his throne of glory in heaven to become a man. He perfectly fulfilled all the covenantal expectations of the law on our behalf. But because of his love for God and his love for us, the blessed one, the fruitful one, became a curse on that tree for you and me. Jesus, not a representation of God, but God himself, the very temple of God, was destroyed for you and me. The prediction of the destruction of the temple was pointing to his excruciating death on the cross. He was crushed, ripped to shreds, beaten and mocked for you and me. The temple of God destroyed. That's Jesus. And as he was hanging on that cross and breathed his last, something amazing happened. An unthinkable thing happened. The innermost court of the temple, you guys remember when I was sharing this with you guys? The holy of holies. What guarded that entrance was a veil blocking entrance into that holy of holy places. What happened when Jesus breathed his last? It tore top to bottom, opening the way for anyone by faith to access God as our Father. Everyone is welcome. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation to experience communion with God. Jesus made way for communion with him. But after three days, God will and God raised him from the dead, securing, securing our victory over sin, Satan, and death. And one of my favorite passages is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the, and the, li and the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. You know what faith does? It unites us to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Please listen carefully. You and I, we cannot and will never meet God's expectations on our own. It's just impossible. But by faith, God's unmet, unmet expectations of us is perfectly met in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we fulfill and satisfy God's covenantal expectations. So when God looks down upon us, because of our faith, he sees Jesus. 
perfect fulfillment of his expectations. You know, about a month ago, I got my first car ever um, for myself. I, I never owned a car. Uh, I'm not really proud of that fact. Um, but Jane and I, we went to the dealership looking for, for a car. And after looking around and, and test driving some cars, um, we decided uh, the one that I wanted. Uh, it was time for the negotiation, and a deal was made. We got a really great deal. Right? And as we're sitting there, um, so, uh, something was requested that made me very nervous. Uh, the salesman says, hey, can you give me your social security number? And uh, I gave it to him, and he's like, I got to check your credit score. And uh, it, was, it was really difficult for me. And I just, as soon as they said that, I looked at Jane, and Jane and I knew um, it wasn't going to be good because of my history. And, I, and some of you guys know my past uh, history. And, uh, you know, a lot of those consequences are now catching up to me. Uh, but I had to get the score in order for me to get that deal. And I was nervous. It felt like a lifetime just sitting there, waiting to hear the final verdict of my credit score. Uh, he came back, and he gave me bad news. He's like, can't do it. Can't do it. Uh, your score is not good enough. But something else happened, very something amazing. They asked Jane for hers, Social Security. And I was like, yes. <laughs> yes. She does not have my history. She's very responsible on top of things. And as they came back, they're like, you got the deal. Jane had to co-sign for me because her credit score is way better than mine. So I got to drive away with that car. And for Jane, it's risky. It's risky because if I, if I fail to make those payments, right, her credit dips. It's going to affect her. So here's how it works, guys. We are told in heaven that God has prepared homes for you and me. I want to get one of those homes. I want to get that house. But before that can happen, God asks for my social security number. He comes back and says, you're not even close. You're not even close. I know it's not even possible, but your credit score is actually negative. <laughs> I don't know how you even got here. You should be in the other place. You should be in hell. Your credit is too bad. You don't even qualify. You deserve hell. And Jesus does something amazing. He said, I'll co-sign for him. I'll co-sign for you. But he doesn't write on the dotted line. He, he doesn't sign something on a paper. He signs his name on my heart. Not with ink, but with his very blood. He co-signs for my place in God's kingdom with his very blood. And that is permanent. By faith, it's permanent. I get that. Not because anything that I've done, but because what Christ has done. That's the beauty of the gospel. That because Christ has died for my sins, his blood is permanently, his name is written permanently upon my heart. So I get a place. I get a house. There's a room for me. That's the gospel message. How beautiful is that? 
You know what's even crazier? Like it's risky for Jesus to do that. Because I fail all the time. I sin all the time. I have such an idolatrous heart. But his credit does not take a dip. Because he has an infinite amount of grace. His work is perfect for you and me. There's nothing that we do in this lifetime if we have faith in him. No matter, sin, no matter what sins that we commit, no matter how many times we fail, his credit does not dip because he is God, a perfect, sufficient savior for you and me. And so we can rest assured, we can have security, we can have joy forever more because of Christ. Jesus becomes our co-signer and he signs his name on our hearts. The invitation for us today is to believe. That's the invitation. Believe. Believe in him, not in yourself. It didn't work. It will never work. Believe in him. Trust in him. And so for those here who have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus, can I ask you to consider this gospel invitation to trust in him, confess your sins, and look to him as your savior. And if you do, and if you want to, and if you're curious about what that actually looks like, please come and talk to myself, Pastor Paul, um, or, or P. Mike, and we'll love to pray with you. But for those who are rooted in Christ, Jesus is your co-signer. If that's you today, I want to tell you, your roots can go deeper. Your roots can grow stronger. You can be stable and consistent and stronger in your faith no matter what comes your way, no matter what storms, no matter what troubles come your way. Your roots can go deeper and it can go stronger. But we need proper nutrients in order for our roots to grow strong. And what is that? There are many, but from our passage, it's very clear. Prayer. Prayer is a gift. It is, it is nutritious for our faith. It helps our roots go deeper and it goes stronger when we commune with God in prayer. Verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Faith is what establishes our roots in Christ, but prayer is what can strengthen those roots. Prayer. Jesus is inviting us to pray. Not having our hope in the outcome, but having our hope in God our Father, no matter the outcome. Please consider the invitation. And as the community of Christ, let's go to him in prayer now. Let's pray together. I want to give you guys an opportunity to respond before I close in prayer. Upon closer examination of our hearts, if God came to us today, what will he see in our hearts? Will he see human effort, religious habits, or will he see true affections and genuine faith? Which is it? I want to give you guys a moment to locate your confidence. 
in what, in whom do you have confidence in today? And if you realize that you've been trusting yourself or you've been trusting things of this world and you feel convicted, can I invite you to pray? Pray to God, help me to see you as my true source. Help me to see you as my only savior and ask God to help you and ask God to stir up faith within you. Can I, can I invite you guys to pray now and just be honest before God? Let's pray together. God, I'm prone to wander. <laughs> I'm prone to leave the God I love. God, it's day in and day out. I find my confidence in myself and my abilities and my family and my wife. And I fail to see you as my true rock, as my cornerstone, as a tree of life. Forgive me, Lord. God, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here that have yet to believe in you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would convict. I ask that you illuminate the beauty and worth and the majesty of Jesus Christ so that we can see salvation here today for your glory. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who's lacking in faith, who's struggling. God, I pray that you will stir up more faith, increase our faith in you. Holy Spirit, you can do that. You can. And so, Lord, we look to you and we ask that you will build this church, build us up to, to be the temple of God that you desire, to bear fruit that gives you glory. God, we need your help. We thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus who uprooted himself. We thank you for Jesus who, whose body was torn for us on that cross so that we can experience you as our heavenly father. We give you all praise, glory, and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.